Welcome to this Podland Interview Extra. I'm James Cridland, the editor of Pod News. I'm Dino Sophos, the founder CEO of Persephonica, the podcast production company. And I'll be on later talking to Sam about our new daily news podcast, The News Agents, presented by Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, and Lewis Goodall. I'm Eric Newsom from Magnificent Noise, and I'll be on later to talk about audiobooks, podcasting, and all things listening. And I'm Mike Caden from Red Circle, and later I'll be talking about our new dynamic insertion features. They will. Podland is sponsored by Buzzsprout, a great place to host your podcast, and by Squadcast, a great way to record it. And this is something a little different that we're trying, and we'd love your feedback. Would you prefer that we added more interviews to this feed? Or are you here for the James and Sam stuff? Or both? Or neither? And if neither, why are you listening anyway? The best way to give us feedback is to drop us a boost using an app like Fountain or by email, Grandad. You want comments at podland.news. Coming up, Eric Newsom looks back at when he worked at Audible, and Mike Caden from Red Circle shares some new tools from the podcast monetization company. If your podcast app supports chapters, you can skip there right now, but don't do that because first is Dino Sophos from Persephonica. Podland's Sam Sethi caught up with him to talk about the news agents, the new daily news podcast from Global and other things. You've had uh, an amazing probably six, 12 months. I don't know what it would be. Uh, and, you know, you've, you've left the BBC. You've started your own company. Let's take a, a little uh, track back before we get into some of the newer stuff you're doing. First of all, you, you're in the BBC. You were producing two of the biggest podcasts that we have in the UK. How did that all come about? With difficulty, actually, to be honest, um, because when I launched well it all started with a, a little podcast that i'm sure you even you as a podcast expert may not have listened to because the numbers were so small called election cast in 2017 and i was basically at the bbc um where i'd been a journalist since kind of 2009 started in local radio had worked at in uh, five live always in sort of talk radio and a lot in politics as well and i was sat in the bbc's newsroom in westminster and it was at the time when a lot of the newspapers were launching podcasts and and the political magazines were launching podcasts and i just thought it was completely bonkers that the bbc didn't do anything similar with the broadcasting heavyweights they had in the newsroom so every morning at nine o'clock there would be the kind of the, the meeting of the day. And you had people like John Pienaar, Laura Koonsberg, Chris Mason, all basically locking heads together and just talking about politics. And for me, that was the most interesting thing I heard all day compared to any of the any of our output. And actually, when I thought about it, I was like, this can go out, you know, they're still being impartial journalists, because that's just how they are. We should turn this into a product. So at the time, the BBC didn't. I mean, now it, you know this is this is before BBC Sounds, right? Before there was any serious podcasting infrastructure at the BBC uh, in terms of commissioning. Uh, there was one. There was one guy at the time who was doing it, and I just basically went to them and said, "Look, we should be doing this. Can I have a go?" Uh, you know, I've done some radio. <laughs> I think I know. I know how to produce a, a show, um, and. He said, oh, I'm not really sure it's a good idea. What we wanted to do in this election was kind of just clip up some bits of Five Live and put it out on a, the podcast feed. And I was like, no, please let me do this. So I eventually convinced them to let me do it. And actually, I had loads of support from Five Live. So it was a Five Live branded podcast election cast at the first uh, when, when it first went out. And 
we had a crack. Right. It was a daily. It went well. Not many people listened to it. But everybody, the key is the talent really, really enjoyed doing it. And it's this thing that's all of a sudden they had a platform where they could talk like human beings about stuff they know about on a daily basis. And so that then morphed into Brexit cast. So it's Friday the 29th of March 2019. That, that, that date that it has been a near professional obligation for us all to trot out every day of our working lives for the last two years. And as we record it, just gone 7.30, we are, what, three and a half hours away from what was meant to be the big departure moment. And, well, it isn't. <laughs> and, yeah, the, the kind of, the rest is history, uh, to quote another famous podcast title as they say so after that the the numbers really started to grow brexit was just such a huge story in the uk and we created a space where people could come and 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 find out what was happening on both sides of those negotiations with huge talent like laura kinsberg and catcher adler and obviously chris mason and adam fleming who then have become you know since since we did that have become huge stars and then it spun off into the daily newscast and thank you to you for joining this episode of Newscast. We thought what we would do is just take an opportunity to catch up on some of the news stories that have happened in the last few days, but we've maybe not had enough time to really think about or process or consider. Because we constantly evolved the, the format, basically, and, and used that, that feed kind of we we, we realised how valuable that feed was and that we constantly had to push forward and try something new. And then the spin-off was AmeriCast with Emily and John. So I, I saw the US elections were coming on the horizon and I thought, right, let's, you know, roll out the format uh, again. Um, who would I want to present that podcast looking? And that was the brilliant thing about being at the BBC. It's like, you're, you know, as a producer, at that time, I was like a kid in a sweet shop with all this amazing talent. And I just thought, you know, who would I want to to present a podcast about US politics? Well, clearly, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel, you know, um, two of the biggest US politics buffs in the UK. Uh, so we launched that. AmeriCast. AmeriCast from BBC News. Well, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. It's not protest. It's insurrection. Today, we are able to breathe again. While I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. I do hug and kiss people casually, women and men. Where are you from? Uh, BBC. Here's another beauty. And again, that did really, really well. We kind of got out of the pandemic and I'd been thinking for a while, I'd been at the BBC for 14 years, that it was you know, probably time for it. That's a good period. Yeah, it's a That's good, a good, it's a good stretch. And, and you know, there was lots of kind of, you, you know, people who worked at the BBC who always, always tend to hit the buffers where they sort of want to be producers and they want to create content, but to kind of, to climb the greasy pole, you have to take on more and more management. And at the, at the BBC, that is like involves a hell of a load of bureaucracy. And I just found myself doing more and more management and less kind of, content creation and a few people were mm -hmm. sort of tapping me on the shoulder approaching me for jobs but actually i just thought do you know what i really want to I, I i feel like this is an opportunity and this is a time for me to take a huge risk obviously but to, to um launch my own thing uh so that's what i did so so like yeah this time last year or just just after sort of july last year i left the beeb and started plotting to set up persephonica um 
with my business partner, Tom O'Hara, because it's always important, Sam, you and I were just talking off air about all the kind of the 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 challenges mm. of startup life and, I, and i'm really lucky that i've yes. got a brilliant business partner who knows about money because obviously working at the bbc for 14 years i had no idea about budgets <laughs> about <laughs> accountants about you know contracts so yeah so so yeah. so we launched and yeah we're really happy with how it's going yeah no i i'm really chuffed watching what you're doing from afar uh, it's brilliant um one of the things before we move on to uh, what you're doing today, um, two questions in my head. One is, where did that name come from? Because I find it really hard to say, but I mean, there must be a great reason for it. So tell me. Persephonica. Yes. Um, well, you know, sort of n- coming up with names for companies is always difficult. Um, and I had a double challenge in that the same time that I launched Persephonica, uh, I had my, uh, we had our first uh, child, um, and I had to name my daughter at the same time that I named the company. Right, and you know, thinking of names is difficult enough. And my daughter is called Persephone, mm. um, so I kind of uh, nicked her name to, <laughs> to to name the company. But we gave it a we wanted it to sound a bit like um, I don't know, like a kind of old school record label, I guess. Um, because I think the ethos of Persephonica, one of the things, is like working with huge talent. And having a roster of podcasts which are, you know, premium, habit forming, have got huge talent attached to it. And that kind of, in my mind, uh, probably slightly grandly, uh, just kind of evoked the idea of an, of, of an old school record label. Oh, I'm, now I'm glad I know the background to it, at least. And I, I will try and get my and tongue. Also, up. the handle, the web domain was available, crucially. <laughs> that uh, is it. That's <laughs> the <now>. reason. <laughs> Got it now. Um, now, I've said BBC now stands for Bye Bye Content Creators. I mean, it, it's basically you've seen the guys over at Crowd Network and a few others, you know, with the Peter Crouch podcast leaving. Is, is Was this something that you felt going on within the BBC or was this a, a narrow channel that you had on your own? You know, Did you know the guys at Cradnet like, like Michael Carr or, or was it a case of, no, I just want to do this. It's not a feeling I have around the BBC. I was in my sort of news bubble, to be right. honest, at the BBC. So, I, I, yeah, I'm aware of other successful podcasts that were happening and that guys were leaving and setting up their own thing. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, as all good business people will tell you, I think you've got to be convinced that, you know, no matter what's going on around you, that you know what you're doing and that you can, you think you can pull it off. So before I jumped, you know, there were conversations happening with talent for sure. Um, and to other people I knew that, you know, if I do this, would you like to work with me in the future? Have you got my back? <laughs> you know, right. frankly. Yeah. So, so I, so I, I, I made that decision purely based on, whether I thought I could pull it off and, and, you know, and I had doubts, you know, even within the first few months of setting up Persephonica, I was like, oh shit, have I, you know, have I bitten off more than I can chew here? As we all do when you're lying awake at night thinking, ah, <laughs> should, should I have just taken that nice uh, job with uh, one of the streamers and had money coming into my bank account every month or, but actually, yeah, we got, got through that period quite quickly with once we announced the, um, the launch of the the news agents um that was kind of the moment for me when i thought great we've got the foundations here for a a really successful uh production company let's start off with then what you're doing today the news agents with emily maitlis why would you remember a pizza express birthday and being at home because going to pizza express in woking is an unusual thing for me to do a very unusual thing for me to do 
John Sopel. Would you accept that that was a good example of the smooth running of government? Yeah, I do. I do. Let me tell you about the German. Wait, wait. I know who you are. Just wait. And Lewis Goodall, the news agents. It's one of those things that when you launched it, you've got great names, um, but... How did you approach Global with the idea or did Global approach you? How did that whole relationship come about? So the initial conversation, uh, and Emily has talked about this a bit already in in some of the interviews she's done around the launch of news agents. Um, the initial conversation happened just before Christmas last year, and as and as I say, I, you know, I'd been talking to talent. Yeah, Emily, and, Emily, John, and I really enjoyed working on news on Americast uh, together. That was our kind of like. We just loved it. We had so much fun. It was a re- creative relationship that really worked. And when I left the Beeb, we kind of were all sort of saying, you know, one day we will work together again. Um, <clears throat> and that conversation started happening pretty quickly. I think Emily and I went for a walk just before Christmas and we were talking about, you know, what could we do together? And at that point, John was being lined up as political editor. Um and I don't think that's a secret. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, it's pretty well known that, you know, he was, he was the lead candidate at the time. Um, and so we just assumed that he wouldn't be interested, that he was, you know, this is his dream job that, you know, probably he'd, he'd always had his sights on. Um, so Emily, I, Emily and I were kicking around other ideas and we kicked an idea around with Hugh Grant, a kind of new, news adjacent podcast where we talked about news stories, but from a slightly different perspective with a journalist and a non-journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Hugh sent us a lovely email saying, I think it's a great idea, but I just basically just don't have the time um, to commit to one, which is, which is very, very honest because I think a lot of talent could take a leaf out of his his book when when starting podcasts, acknowledging that they do take time and commitment. Um, And then in the same kind of afternoon, we kind of thought, well, look, can we not just do just a more ambitious version of Americas, but not at the BBC? And I went, well, yeah, I, I think we definitely can, you know, and, and I was having conversations already. I'd spoken, had a very early conversation when I left the BBC and set up Persephonica with James Rear at Global. Um, and, you know, I'd sort of kicked around some names of talent that I would really rated. And Emily was obviously up there and John was up there and he really liked Americast. So, you know, once Emily and I had kind of had that conversation about, you know, we'd like to do this and, and can we do it? Um, we, uh, Emily called John up, I think that that same day. And I think he said that this sounds amazing and I'd, I'd love to be involved. So at that point, we very quickly, uh, arranged a conversation. We, we had conversations with a, with a, with a, a few people actually. Um, but it was really clear that global were just the most ambitious, got what we were doing. Um, clearly we're, we're at that point had made a commitment to push into podcasting in a big way um, and that Global Player was going to be the future. Um, so at, at that stage, I think it was very clear from our first conversation um, with with James that, you know, I think he was surprised that Emily was going to leave the BBC, as we all were, frankly, you know, and, and the, the, the press reaction was, um, was, uh, was, you know, just basically showed that, I think. But yeah, uh, they were, it all happened very, very quickly actually it happened very quickly and we you know we knew that to pull this off we need the backing of a huge media organization you know producing daily content at the best of times is um grueling and hard 
uh, and not cheap, right? You know, mm. it takes resource and you need, you, you also need a back office operation. So we couldn't just do this by ourselves. You know, it was never going to happen. Um, and global have been an amazing partner. And I think you can see that from, you know, we're two or three weeks in now, I've lost track. Um, but you can already see just how much impact has come from that relationship, how it was on billboards around the country. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was top of the podcast charts straight away. And I think that, that that's, that's kind of, you know, down to the content and the talent, but sure. But it's also, you know, down to the the partnership as well well yeah global own a load of billboards that they bought up and they had the radio stations to help promote it i think absolutely yeah. i think when people say you know how do you make a hit how do you make a hit podcast great content yes great presenters tick but you know added to that a budget for marketing it uh, and getting it into the the awareness of people right people uh, have got to people have got to discover it and discovery in podcasting is as, as there are more and more podcasts out there and you know and news and current affairs is a big space sure but it's a competitive space so um you know getting people to break a habit and build a new one is also a challenge yeah i mean most people have a space for three maybe four podcasts in their personal you know uh, listening time and to get a new one in you have to normally push one out um that's generally what i've found now look um moving on from um i'll come back to the news agent shortly but you've also got an interesting one and i just would love to know how this one came about you do a podcast with jira Lipa, who i love dearly and you yeah. you basically not only have done a podcast with jira Lipa, but you've also internationalized it listen to dua Lipa at your service on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts who approached who how did you get to dua Lipa? and don't tell me she, you know your godmother is her uncle or aunt or something no no not at all <clears throat> um that was so that was a, that was persephonica's first job um and uh in his sort of industry connections dua was uh dua, dua has launched a um a, a kind of lifestyle uh concierge cultural concierge yep. brand called service 95 and uh which she runs herself with her with her management so it's not attached to the label um and she wanted to make a podcast as part of that offer um so the word went out that they were looking for a producer and i think they were they were talking to um a variety of production companies at the time um and as as you'd expect some in america but actually at the, i think it came down to the fact purely that the um that her manager at the time who was kind of leading the search for uh, a partner for this um was a huge fan of americast and and really liked my work um and i met them and i told them what i thought we should do with it and yeah we did the, the relationship gelled and we did some pilots and they sounded great and you know and this is not a you know this is not your typical pop star musician chats to their mates about nonsense you know this has got depth it's very intelligent and i think a lot of the the the, the you know the, the the kind of characteristics i guess from the news and current affairs space that i have built we've applied to this podcast so you know we're about to do our first episode of the second series and I can't give away who who that episode is featuring, but it's a huge name from, uh, you know, I guess political history. Actually, 
Um, And it's a really, really interesting conversation. And we speak to activists and as well as musicians. Sure, we had Elton John on the last podcast, right? And that's fascinating. Mm. But I think think what what we've done with this was we wanted to give it gravitas and it to be a really, really warm, but something where you learn a lot from it as well. And it's done really, really well. No, it has done really well. And it's, it was unexpected, actually. Uh, not unexpected that it would do well. Unexpected that Dua Lipa would do a podcast in the form that she's done it. But what also fascinated me about what you did was you 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 translated the podcast into multiple languages. And I remember talking about it on Podland at the time. And we, we had a little chat. Um, again, what was that decision-making process? Why did you want to internationalize it so quick? And why did you do it in the format you've done it? Because maybe you can explain that it's not just, um, you know, a, a Dua Lipa trying to talk in other languages. It's really interesting where you do it. Sort of, let me just try and uh, set it up. It's where you, Dua Lipa says something, but then it goes into like a UN style yeah, it's translator. UN translation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, look, uh, again, uh, you know, as with, with with all podcasts, you experiment with different things, and we're and we're. When you, when you launch a new podcast, you don't really know where your audience are going to be primarily, primarily, right? And you look at the the data of, you know, who your talent reaches already. And clearly, with Dua, you know, South America is a huge audience for her. Um, so look, it was really hard work. We we had to translate each episode um, individually, uh, and then get voiceover artists uh, actors who would play doer but also play each guest mm-hmm. so it's a huge huge amount of of, of work and, and we did that with uh spanish um portuguese and french so um but yeah look i, I think that there's a there's a there's a lot of experimentation going in with um translating podcasts into different languages i think it's a lot more common in kind of narrative podcasts where it's like maybe one voice um I think this kind of conversational magazine type show interview show where you're translating it, I think we we took a lot of learnings from that. You know, I think ultimately people want to hear, um, the voice of the talent that's, and and, and a lot of the time that's what they're tuning in for. Um, and maybe, you know, a lot of people speak English as well in those territories, um, or, or they speak some, you know, English to some degree, but would rather listen to, you know, the, 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 the character, the, the people in their, in their, in their original voice. I think there's a lot of where, where I'm really interested to see this, to see where the tech goes. There are people already, and I think Google is one of them who are, who are basically, uh, developing very, very impressive AI translation software. Mm-hmm. So it basically takes a sample of the voice and translates it, translates it. We, we tested it. Some of the software that's out there already still sounds a little bit robotic. Um, but I think if we can get to a stage where you can actually hear the, the original voice of somebody, but it's translated into other languages, I think that's where we want to be. Uh, to be honest, I think that, I think, I think that's, that's the future. We've just done three episodes over the summer just kind of while the 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 the, um series taking a break which completely broke the format as well and we had three episodes which was one was a was a meditation class do do a leading a meditation class one was her doing a yoga session and one was her doing a cooking session cooking her favorite meal um and we filmed those and put those on we put those on youtube with you know uh with subtitles um so I, I think we're still experimenting at the moment. 
the huge i think you know we've got a huge audience in the us uh, and that was clear from the from the first series um we were and another really interesting thing that happened as well was that we were approached by bbc sounds um who wanted to po- uh, to host the podcast on bbc sounds which was really interesting because it's third party contra- mm-hmm. content so the bbc um, I think did a handful of titles as a, as a bit of an experiment. Um, and that was great in terms of driving UK listeners as well. So, so the first series, it, you know, it was hosted by iHeart, um, obviously huge in the States. Uh, and when the season had completed, we were allowed to then distribute it on BBC sounds. Uh, so I think again, we're just trying to grow the audience as much as possible in as many territories as possible. Um, and the reception to it has been fantastic. And, and it was great that the BBC wanted to kind of put this on, on sounds as, as a, as one of their flagship third party shows. That's nice. I mean, obviously given your contacts within the BBC, that helps, but I mean, it's brilliant that they chose you as well. Now, um, mm. one thing going through my head, um, Dua Lipa's audience, I mean, my, tell me if i'm wrong but i would say it's much more of a younger audience a a pop cultured audience um and mm. yet she's talking on subjects as you said you're going to have a political historian coming on soon it's not a historian not a historian actually it's oh, okay. a, a a figure from history that oh, you will know as okay. soon as you hear the Fine. name yeah. okay but but what i'm trying to say is these are more mature subjects right that yep. wouldn't maybe appeal to a 15 or 16 year old female mainly audience I, um, maybe i'm just disparaging i mean i love Dua Lipa, so i'm not disparaging her at all but i'm just saying that her audience would i assume be a younger more female pop orientated audience and yet she's taking this genre into so were you secure in the knowledge that you would bring an audience through because she's growing a new audience i thought for her podcast which is different yeah because 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 everything i've learned in podcasting about young audiences is never underestimate their intelligence and their um desire to learn um and expose themselves to subjects that may be slightly out of their comfort zone but they want to learn and i think that's what we know about podcasting right is people people yeah do want companionship sure but they they also that's why some of these podcasts that where you're just doing superficial nonsense chat about you know uh going to the pub mm-hmm. just doesn't doesn't cut it anymore people want to if they're going to devote 40 minutes of their day to you they want to learn something they want to be challenged and actually you know people like Riz Ahmed people like Megan Lee Stallion people like Lisa Tadeo the author that you know young people are reading Lisa Tadeo's books right like I, th- I think you know the, the Lisa Tadeo probably has a has a slightly older audience too but it's 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 raising awareness of people in the cultural sphere um and talking about their lives and talking about how they developed their careers and fell into the you know fell into their chosen line of work um and that's really inspiring for younger audiences um so you know we we did a punt out again one of the things that i learned from americast was you know, we want to hear, reflect the audience, hear from the audience, encourage them to send in their voice notes. And without fail, and this is amazing and, and you know, is what every single platform aspires to, without fail, 90% of the voice notes were coming from young females, I would say kind of wow. 20, 20s and below. Really intelligent, thoughtful comments about 
not just how the previous episode had 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 inspired them, but that but that with great questions that they wanted to ask. So yeah, I have no I have no doubt that you know younger audiences are are wanting to plug into something that is challenging um, and 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 helps them learn about the world. Now I want to just change tracks slightly. I mean, going back to your production company itself. Um, who owns the IP to your slate? Uh, is it a joint IP? I mean, again, with somebody like Dua Lipa, you know, is it her IP that you're just producing or are you joint IP? Again, with NewsAgent, is that again, Global owns it and you're producing? It's one of the things that people on, you know, when they set up a production company, it, they look at, you know, how are they going to monetize all of their, their work and time? And one is owning the IP so you can resell it later on and do other things with it. Who owns the IP for you? So I can't really get into specific uh, contractual arrangements, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, because of um, non-disclosure yeah. uh, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not going to talk specifically about about contracts, if, if you forgive no, me. No, that's fine. Me. Um, but look, I think... As with any production company, you 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 definitely it's yeah IP is absolutely critical, um, but you also need to like especially we we know we're less than a year old right so it's also about kind of um, building a business. Um, so I think it's a, it's always a hybrid mo- model, and you you approach jobs in a different way, don't you? You go right, you know, and it's also like how much support you're getting, um, and what the other person is contributing. So it's always a there's never, and this is what I think is so great about the podcasting industry at the moment is it's there isn't like a set way of doing anything, and every every podcast that we are talking about. It might be a partnership with another production company. It, may, it might be a partnership with a streamer. It might be a partnership with talent. Um, we've we've just signed to uh, uh, a really big agency. Um, I can't because the, the the ink isn't dry on the contract yet, mm-hmm. so I won't I won't say the name of it. But you know, those conversations are all around. You know, collaborations is the word at the moment, which is so interesting. It's like we we really want to match you up with this. You know this production company in America because we think that they're trying to push into different territory. We think, you know, with your experience under your belt, that's a really great um, partnership and straight away. Yeah. You're, you're, you're always talking about IP, how that's going to, how that split's going to work. Um, and, you know, th- th- and I think that's a live conversation right now with, with the, with the big streamers as well. Right. You know, how much I think, I think it started originally and there are well-known stories of people who've had hit podcasts and podcast creators kind of been frozen out of the IP. And I think very, people are very smart now about what they're willing to, to hand over, uh, for how long <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, you know, so, so I think we're having very mature conversations with everybody about, you know, IP, backend splits, all of that stuff, which is, um, which is, which is, you know, fine. But also, you know, there's nothing wrong with a good, you know, a good flat fee now and again, right? As a production company, <laughs> as a startup, um, <laughs> right? You know, and it's and and that's great. I think it, I think it's as long as you've got a kind of diverse um, ecosystem of, of 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 revenue and monetization. Um, I think that's great, and I think that's how a lot of production companies are working at the moment. But yeah, sure, IP is really interesting, uh, of course, to us, and about how we take that forward into you know spin-off content around live shows and TV spin-offs and, f- and movie spin-offs, uh, and that's why pairing with a with a great agent um, 
is is also really really important to us how long does it take to produce the news agent on a daily basis i mean how many hours is production to output it varies depending on the episode and we are very very much in experimentation phase still at the moment i mean one one of the things that's fascinating for me about this process is that i launched all the casts with the bbc with basically nobody paying much attention to the first few months of them which mm-hmm. as a podcast producer is frustrating at the time because you're like come on guys this is great content but then to go from a <laughs> to go from that to like basically having uh people sort of do live you know basically like live reviews of your first episode when you know frankly the first episode of anything is never going to be amazing (laughs) because because you know that's just not how podcasts work um it was it was it was a real eye uh, it was a real eye opener to all of us i think which is just like okay i mean this is a daily podcast that we're going to be doing for years to come if you want to if you want to like base your base your judgment on the first episode then cool uh but that's not really how it works as we all know in podcasting um so like i think from you know we're very much experimenting trying different things every day so some episodes are more produced with lots more clips and and more interviews um some are like a long conversation with one person so we did an episode the day before last with gabriel gatehouse the now independent uh podcaster uh who formerly of the bbc who is um came on and talked about ukraine for half an hour with us and that was great uh now in terms of production time we can turn that around fairly fairly quickly i would say other days there are you know it takes it takes a lot longer i guess we're uh, to, to give you a little insight into our day uh i mean you we, we're having this chat in a little bit of downtime in mean, look i'm executing we've got an amazing team who are who are who are sort of running the running the podcast day to day but um we have a chat at eight thirty in the morning uh, where we decide what we're going to do. Then the team go off and start putting in their interview requests. I think that what's amazing at the moment is just the willingness of people to come on the show is fantastic. So we've had some really big name guests already, but people really, we're not, <clears throat> we're not kind of, um, we're pushing at an open door with a lot of contributors, which is just such a great space to be. People are really excited about being on the podcast. So that makes producers jobs a lot easier yeah. when you get a yes rather than 20 no's. Um, so then we're tr- we're trying to record it. We're trying to get it out for like the drive time commute every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so five o'clock is when we're trying to hit. Um, but we're giving ourselves some leeway as well. You know, like today we're recording an episode that is going to be about um abortion laws in the us so we're america's not awake yet so we're gonna we're gonna have to wait to record those interviews probably until two o'clock is when we're i think the team are going to record today so to get that up from five let's say you finish recording at three gives you two hours to turn around an episode now luckily we've got a, a, a team of shit hot producers who are very very quick um, but still you have editorial standards and you know people need to listen to the episode before yeah. it goes out that takes straight away that's half an hour you know out yeah. of your out of your out of your two hours so um you know it's it you know workflows are adapting all the time and we're figuring out the best way of doing things but that that's kind of the the schedule of the day you know recording at about one o'clock ish um between well recording between 12 and 2 and then getting it out as quickly as possible because you know 
we want people to be listening on their drive time commute. We, we know that a lot of people will listen when they're ready. Some people might wait until the weekend and look through our titles and choose one episode out of the five. But we know there are a lot of people who are listening as soon as it drops, um, which is a great place to be. We're already creating that habit where people are, are really waiting for it um, for their commute home. Again, I, I may be one of those. So, <laughs> <laughs> great, great to hear. Um, okay, look, let's look forward a little bit. I mean, you know, you, you've hit two out of the park. What comes next for you? I mean, have you got other ideas in the pipeline? Well, no, that's a stupid question. Of course, you've got other ideas in the pipeline. Yeah. The question is, yeah. what are those other ideas in the pipeline? Um, we have got lots of really, really interesting ideas. I mean, I've mentioned. Uh, I think right when we spoke last time, I mentioned that we've we've collaborated with some uh, TV and film production companies, uh, Warp Films up in Sheffield being one of them. Um, we're developing podcasts in a slightly different space with 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 those guys in the more sort of narrative space. Um, we are working on a travel format uh, with Alice Levine which is really, really interesting. So we're developing that at the moment. There's lots of stuff in the pipeline um, that, I, that I can't get into at the moment. But yeah, we're, we're, but, but what I would say is that what we're not doing as a production company, and this is, I think, from our point of view, this is really important, is that Persephonica is in this for the long game. You know, this is not me um, trying to kind of like create, create a production company, raise the value and sell it in five years. We actually want to create like a really, really, um, premium podcast production company where we take pride in everything that we do and we create podcasts of the highest quality. I'm not really interested in the kind of like chucking a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what, seeing what sticks. I want to take time to create podcasts. And I think we've shown that already with Dua Lipa and with, um, news agents working with the biggest talent, um, working with the best producers in the industry and the best sound designers and creating stuff that is really going to like stand the test of time. Brilliant. Dino, thank you so much for your time. I know that your day is very busy, so I appreciate you taking the time out. Really, really appreciate it. And um, I'm a big fan and a listener of Podland, so it's always nice to be on. Dino Sophos from Persephonica. In the main podland this week, we talked to Eric Newsom about Spotify's move into audiobooks, but he started the interview by talking about his time at Audible. I'm joined by Eric Newsom. He is the co-founder of Magnificent Noise, a podcast production company, but he's more famous for his time at NPR and at Audible. Eric, hello. How are you? I'm fine. I don't know if anyone's ever referred to my time in audio as being famous, but I'll take whatever little I can get, right? <laughs> Oh, come on. Everyone knows who you are. So look, for the very few people left in the world who don't, what is Magnificent Noise? Let's start off with that first. Well, Magnificent Noise is a consulting and production company that's based in New York City. Our work isn't that much different than many other production companies. We do work for hire work. We do consultancy with companies that are trying to figure out what they should be doing in audio. And sometimes those consulting arrangements end up becoming production relationships too. And we give advice to people from individual creators up to some of the largest media companies in the world. We don't necessarily have the answers to everything, but we are very good at asking questions. And sometimes those questions lead people in a clear direction. So that's basically the work we do. And we have a really good time doing it. And how long's Magnificent Noise been around? Uh, it depends on how you count. My <laughs> co-founder and I, uh, Jesse Baker, Folkovlik and I, left Audible in the summer of 2018. So by that measure, it's been four years. But I wrote a book about podcasting 
and Jesse had a baby right after we left. Both those things happened. And so we decided I'd write my book. She'd create life. And then we get back together and start working. And I started working slightly before her. So we were actually a bona fide thing in 2019. But it depends on how you count. And you mentioned it there, of course, your time at Audible. What mm-hmm. were you doing there? I was the senior vice president of original content development at Audible. When I came in there in 2015, Audible has had a long track record of dabbling in original content production, sometimes in the US, sometimes in the UK or Germany. And they wanted someone to come in to unify it, give it some form, really make it into what you see today, enterprise that can churn out a lot of content. And I have a photo that I love to show people when we're talking about Audible of on my first day, they showed me the original content division at Audible. It was a row of broken desks and some chairs, no computers and definitely no people. And we had to build everything from scratch. We had to build not only the editorial strategy, but all the infrastructure and the accounting and legal and everything else. And we started churning out content nine months later. So it was a pretty fun ride. When I look at Audible, and I've been a customer of Audible for a long time, if you look at my library, they clearly started out calling everything audiobooks. But when you go to the website now, they do have a tab for podcasting. And when you look at the type of content, I can't tell the difference between what is a podcast and what is an audiobook. And they call it Audible Originals. So you've got Stephen Fry, you've got Jennifer Saunders. I'm looking at the UK version because that's where my redirection goes. But tell me, what is the difference? Are these not just audiobooks? Are they not just podcasts? And podcasts, are they not audiobooks? Is it tomato, tomato, or is there a difference between the two? I think the reality is for the user... It's tomato. That they're like, I like Stephen Fry. I don't care if it's Stephen Fry narrating his own book. I don't care if it's Stephen Fry narrating somebody else's book. I don't care if it's Stephen Fry hosting or presenting an audio series. I don't care if it's Stephen Fry doing interviews. I just like Stephen Fry. So I'm going to gravitate towards that. And so for the user, I think as the audio industry continues to evolve, that becomes less and less of an important distinction. And sometimes people will say things like, oh, I don't like audiobooks or, oh, I don't like podcasts. Believe it, there are 60% of the world who doesn't listen to podcasts. So one way to get around those biases or lack of understanding of what they are is to not call them those terms, which is one of the things that we experimented around during our time at Audible. So I think from a user perspective, it's increasingly becoming I want to laugh, or I want to think about something new, or I want to hear a great story. Those are the experiences they're looking for, and they can find those in all those different genres. I think the biggest distinction, and one of the most troubling things to work around, is that audiobooks have a very different business model around them than podcasts do. And as a result of those business models, they are distributed differently, they are monetized differently, and both models have lots of problems as you proceed into the future. But one of the things that keeps them from just being one big pile of stuff are those kind of legacy business relationships that are understandably difficult to square. You say the different business models. I'd like to unwrap that a little bit more, if you don't mind. At the end of the day, isn't it just a case of a piece of audio content trying to grab the user's time and attention? And in the case of Audible, I've been trained Pavlovian style to pay credits and a subscription, and I just do that by nature now and say, I get my one credit, I get my one audio book, et cetera, et cetera. But yet when I come to the podcasting well, that model of paying has been up until recently, until Apple introduced subscriptions and people started getting into that mode. And I still don't believe 
most podcasters pay or happily pay subscriptions yet. So why is one model been so successful in its subscription model, but podcasting hasn't? Well, you know, I always say that when you look at podcasting and audiobooks, that podcasting has all the people and audiobooks has all the money. And uh, I think that certainly bears out now when you look at the estimates of the value of the podcast industry versus the value of the audiobook industry. The audiobook industry is worth at least three times what the podcast industry is, with a huge caveat to that. It's larger regardless, but uh, even I just fell into my own bias that I hate, where people equate the income and revenue of podcasting with advertising. And that's something that no one should do, including myself. So it's even more basic than what you said. It's podcasts are predicated on the idea of free and open access and distribution. Audiobooks are predicated on the idea that this is a piece of merchandise that you market, sell, and someone buys and consumes. Someone who's in the audiobook space, once you make that purchase decision for that audiobook, whether you're purchasing it a la carte or you're purchasing it with a, a subscription service, um, that point, they're kind of interested in what happens ends for the most part. Like sales made, we're done. Many people in the audiobook industry don't even track if anyone listens to those files. With very little exception, there are some people who do track it, mostly for people who are new or making trial memberships, but people just don't pay attention to it throughout the audiobook industry. They, all they care about is sales. But in podcasting, it's the exact opposite. If you subscribe or follow or whatever, that's interesting information. It's useful information, actually. But what people really pay attention to is consumption. Will they care about that, though, if they move to a subscription model? If I pay for my podcast, irrespective of then how far I consume it, becomes irrelevant again. It's only because it's an advertising model that we care about the length of consumption. You know, I think that podcasting is just dangerously too far into the realm of paying attention to what's important to advertisers. That's what happened to commercial radio. And that's why commercial radio is in the literally decimated space that it's in. They got out of the content business and the content making and distribution business and got into the advertising business. And that's when you look at some of the major players who are in the advertising support space, that's what they are. They greenlight and produce things because they want to drive downloads and they greenlight things that will create more downloads because that's their metric of support. The interesting thing about subscription is it starts to turn the attention towards the other sources of revenue, which is where, frankly, I think there's so much growth potential. So there's only four ways a podcaster can make money. There's advertising, which we talk about. There's listener-sensitive revenue, which is any time that a listener gives you money, whether it's through a subscription or whether it's through buying merch or tickets to a live event, wherever there's a direct financial or Patreon, whatever, whenever there's a direct financial relationship with the listener, that is actually, I think, the biggest area of growth we could have in our industry is that. And in that, your consumption data and listening data becomes really critical to understand not just how to get that subscriber, but keep that subscriber. Then there is institutional forms, which is grant making, sponsored content, anywhere where someone is paying you to make a podcast and that other forms of revenue are not nearly as important. That's the third. And then the fourth is derivative IP, which I think people are focused on when they're fighting with distributors as to who's going to control the IP. In truth, many of the companies that are absolutely adamant about controlling IP from creators are the worst at actually doing anything with it. They control thousands of IP properties and they sell nothing. So I always believe that should go with whoever is most likely to sell it. Sometimes that's a creator, sometimes that's a network, sometimes that's an agent. Who cares? So those four forms of revenue. And every time people talk about podcasting as an industry, they only focus on the advertising number. And I think that if you added up all the other forms, it's probably equal to that advertising 
revenues. Uh, and that's a complete guess based on nothing. But it, let's assume it is. Then audiobooks are still bigger than podcasting. Okay. I take that as a given from you, given your background. But sticking with Amazon and Audible, why does Amazon keep Audible at arm's length but have podcasting within Amazon Music? Is there a Chinese wall between the two, or is it just two thiefdoms of corporate executives who won't let the two merge together? Because it seems such an odd thing to have them as separate applications within one company. So I would say that it's pretty obvious within Amazon culture that different divisions are set up sometimes to compete with each other. It's that competition is sometimes literal business, sometimes it is a competition of ideas. And if you look at the Audible business model it is mostly focused on subscription. They have a, a allergy to advertising, as I've heard it expressed publicly by other people who work at Audible. And if you look at Amazon Music, they're much more interested in advertising. And that's a very different paradigm for how to produce content. Amazon is such a large company with so many interests. I, I don't know this as a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that they really wanted to see how these two models fared against each other. We know that four out of five people don't mind advertising in podcasts, one out of five do, and would be willing to pay to avoid it. That looks like a one-fifth of the podcast industry is a sizable number of people. And if you add up their paying certain amount of money per month, it becomes a very substantial amount of money. And so I think that it wouldn't surprise me. Again, I have no insight into this at all because a lot of Audible and Amazon Music's movement into podcasting happened after I left. But it wouldn't surprise me if them to say like, look, there's two different paradigms for how we could be in this space. Let's try both. Before we move on to talk about Spotify's entry into audiobooks, one last question just in my mind. What, if you were still in Audible, would you do differently? Wow. Well, that's a great question. It's predicated on me having a lot of information that I don't have today. I think if I was still in Audible, the primary thing I would do was ask a very existential question of what is the relationship I would want to have with my audience? So there's two things that annoy me in the world more than anything else. One is when people externalize their threats, when actually threats are internalized. And by sticking to a way of thinking and a way of working in the historical way we've done things is preventing us from having a robust future. And so if I was inside of Audible, I would say, how can we recognize the past and yet embrace a different course for the future? I think that is okay. honestly what I would think. And from those questions, I think you would have a great conversation and a lot of answers. And so, yeah, one thing that always annoys me is people who don't realize that internal threats are obviously much more impactful than external threats. And the second is lazy people who just do things the same way all the time. And I'm not putting anyone in that bucket in this conversation, but I'm saying that it's very easy when you're successful to avoid asking yourself tough questions and taking risks. Yeah, the innovator's dilemma. Now, just before we move on, the other thing you mentioned was within Audible potentially not being bothered about the length of consumption, given that they've paid for the product already. But one of the things I do love about Audible is the element of gamification that's built into it. So it does tell me when I've finished a book. It does tell me how many hours I've listened. It does give me those sorts of metrics. And I always feel frustrated that they don't take that one stage further. So if I'm a super listener... Why don't you give me an extra credit? Why don't you give me some reward for the element of gamification that you're giving me? And I think that is one thing I wish Audible would look at. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of businesses do spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep customers engaged. And mm. Let's say you're a voracious audiobook consumer and you 
consume that book in a week? What are you supposed to do for the rest of the month? And I think that's a really good question. I have a newsletter that you can get at audioinsurgent.com. It's called The Audio Insurgent. Magnificent Noise is at the very difficult to find website of magnificentnoise.com. And you can find information about Magnificent Noise, my newsletter and my book at ericnewsom.com. Eric Newsom. The rest of that interview is in Podland from Thursday, September the 15th, which is in this very podcast app just there. Look. And finally, I spoke to Mike Caden about his company's new features that let you, yes, you, sell dynamic ads too. He's the founder of Red Circle. Red Circle is a podcast hosting company, um, but more importantly, we provide podcasters with a bunch of tools for growth and also for monetization. And so while we do podcast hosting, there's a lot of companies that do podcast hosting. Our main focus is on all the better things that we do uh, beyond just the hosting, uh, especially in the monetization department. Okay, so uh, what are some of those better things that you do? Yeah. So first of all, we have a, a product for listener payments, which lets you collect payments from your fans in exchange for exclusive content. So, um, you know, something similar to a, a paywall that you might find or a Patreon, or there's a bunch of different companies that do this. Um, the difference is, of course, that it's integrated into your hosting. So you're not uploading your content into a different place uh, and you can get your analytics uh, for your downloads on your exclusive shows right next to your, your regular ones. And it's all fully integrated. Um, and then probably our biggest focus is on advertising where we do both programmatic ads as well as uh, host-read endorsement-style advertising, advertising in a fully automated fashion. Meaning uh, even for host-reads, uh, you're getting notifications through our platform about deals that you can participate in. You're uploading your ad read you know, to Red Circle, uh, just the ad read on its own. And then our dy dynamic insertion technology is integrated into the host-read automation. So all you're telling us is where your ads go in general, and we're taking ads in and out and putting the money in your bank account at the end of the month. Um, so it's all a fully automated suite of tools, both for advertisers and for podcasters, to enable sort of efficient host-read advertising uh, at the scale of hundreds of podcasts in a single campaign. Okay, so you, you've announced some new dynamic insertion features this week. What, what are those new uh, features? Tell us about them. Yeah, so for a long time, we've given lots of power to advertisers that use Red Circle's platform for the deployment of host Red ads, so they can run these campaigns across, like I said, 50, 100 shows. Um, but what we haven't done for much uh, time at all uh, is provide similar capabilities for podcasters themselves, you know, because historically, Red Circle makes most of its money by the ad reads that we help sell. Um, we haven't tended to focus on tools that help podcasters to make money on their own, not because we don't want them to, you know, go, go ahead. We, we, we encourage podcasters to get dollars from wherever they can find it. Um, but just because, um, you know, we have to generally focus our engineers on the things that matter most. And what we found is as we've grown bigger, we've started to work with podcasters that are also good at selling ads on their own more often. And so we've decided to focus here as well. So not only can we bring our own host red demand to your show and programmatic demand to your show, if you have your own dynamic ad campaigns that you want to run, we're now providing you the tools to be able to do that uh, on top of your podcast. Um, things like uh, impression caps on a campaign, things like date ranges and start to finish, things like pixels that you can uh, paste in to be able to uh, run attribution on the campaigns that are running on your podcast. All of these tools are part of some of our paid plans now. Now, which lets you, um, you know, be able to do uh, ad, you know, to be able to sell your own ads in addition to the stuff that Red Circle uh, is bringing as well. That's very cool. Is that is that integrated with uh, vast tags and stuff like that, or is it a, a purely a, a Red Circle thing? 
no vast integrations just yet, but it's definitely an interesting place we would want to go. Um, mm. But you can upload arbitrary audio of your own creation. Um, you know, you can record your own host rate ad view. Let's say your local pizza shop says, hey, you know, we would love to run an ad. We want to buy 100,000 impressions. And here's our uh, pod sites pixel URL that we want to run on there. You can upload that. You can run that yourself. Um, and then in the inventory in the next slot over, we'll run Red Circle's ad. So you can sort of have fuller control over the ads you run and the ads that we also find on your behalf. That's very cool. And I noticed that, you know, there's a bunch of podcast hosts who are adding dynamic insertion features. And you seem to have the best of both worlds in that you're monetizing for people that want to do that. But you're also allowing um, allowing other um, podcasters to monetize for themselves as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, for a long time, we've been providing basic dynamic insertion tools that would just say, you know, you could put an intro in or you could put, you know, cut something into your mid roll. But what's really new here is the sort of campaign management tools that sit on top of that for, like I said before, you know, maximum number of impressions of a particular piece of audio mm -hmm. uh, and so on, right? We've been giving tools to creators for a long time for, you know, random placement or, um, you know, or, or being able to, to cut in, you know, an ad you've have for yourself for your book tour or whatever things you want to do with dynamic ad or dynamic audio in general. Um, but now we've sort of combined this with campaign management tools as well. Um, you know, what we found is that there's a lot more folks interested in helping podcasters to do host red ads these days than there were a couple of years ago. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure our creators get a chance to, to play around with these as well. And normally if you want to get some of these campaign management tools, you're paying big dollars to an enterprise podcast hosting company. Mm. Um, you know, red circles based here is completely free, but even our tiers that uh, that some of these features come with are very competitively priced in the market. I noticed um, uh, you were at uh, Podcast Movement, as was I, and um, there was some new research uh, that came out of Sounds Profitable um, talking about uh, host red ads versus uh, announcer red, mm -hmm. which is very confusing because here in Australia, the, the host of a show is called an announcer. So uh, that, that, that blows my head. But anyway, yeah. um, host red versus uh, spots and things. What, what, what's, your, um, what's your experience in terms of how well each of those work? Uh, did, did you see the same sort of thing that actually both of them work pretty well identically? Or do you see host red as working significantly better? Uh, we see, I mean, I thought the data showed that uh, that host red was significantly better, but both of them were good. And I think that's generally mm -hmm. what we see as well. <laughs> and that's why we run programmatic ads uh, as well, because we think those can perform and we sell those actively. And then, but, but we do think, um, for, especially for a middle-class podcaster, which is the type of podcast that we focus on, um, that host red is just so much more lucrative. And so if you're a podcaster, that should be what you're interested in as much as possible. Um, in terms of performance, um, to me, the thing that matters the most is something a little bit more complex than what was uh, studied in that in that study, which is, you know, how good is this podcaster at doing the host read endorsement, mm. right? I think more interesting would be to give the same talking points to 50 different podcasts and see the, uh, you know, maybe perhaps measuring the demographics and seeing, okay, let's find 50 true crime podcasts with 90% millennial women listening and give them the same set of talking points. It's got very similar audiences. You're going to see drastic 
fantastic, you know, multiples of difference in performance between those different shows. And so, um, you know, what we're in the business of at Red Circle is helping brands to find those, you know, those diamonds, those, those hosts that have really close connections with their audience and can really sell stuff. Um, because those are the ones where you're going to find the best performance and, you know, the little five or 10% difference that you're going to get between, um, you know, whether it's uh, pre-produced for that host or whether they're sort of riffing and doing it on the spot, I don't think matters that much relative to those huge, uh, uh shifts in, in how connected that host is to the audience and how good they are at, at doing ads. And you said earlier that you, um, that you accept listener payments and things like that as well. Um, uh, what what uh, amount of people on your platform are using are using those or is it is it mostly ads or is it uh, or you know are you seeing more and more of the of those payments happening as well um i mean i think uh, it, our business is mostly ads but we have several podcasters a good number of podcasters that are making a lot of money through payments so uh it, that's more mm. about i think our focus than any like industry uh you know insight uh, what I will say is that the podcasters that make the most money on Red Circle per thousand downloads, so for their audience size, are the folks who use our listener payments tools. So if you can convince enough people to spend, you know, $5 a month and you only have, say, 100 or 500 people listening, if you can convert a good percentage of those folks, you have a much better chance of making good money uh, with listener mm-hmm. payments than with ads. Um, but the most effective podcast uh, on the platform in terms of conversion uh, does both ads and listener payments, and there's no ads on the on the paid for podcast. And they also do it's a sports a daily sports news show. They do Monday through Thursday is a free show with ads, and then on Friday after you've been listening to this guy give his spiel every day for four days mm. in a row, you know you're addicted to it, and you need to hear the news on Friday. Well, certainly you're going to pay five dollars. So you know it really depends on on your setup as to how you can get people to convert, but it can be quite lucrative as a podcaster. Uh, in the in the end, you know I think if you look at Netflix now, it's going to start having ads. I think most people uh, like to think of things in simple terms, but as far as Red Circle is concerned, we believe in the future of both of these styles of monetization. Yeah. And in terms of the new podcast namespace, in terms of uh, some of the new features uh, in there, do you support any of those? Where, where Where's your sort of head at in terms of that? My head is at a much further along place than where the business is. And that's just always the case about all the features <laughs> that I want to implement. Um, we do the GUID. That one was easy. We have mm-hmm. three or four other things in our pipeline. We're thinking about transcripts in a more general sense. But once we have our sort of head around what we're doing with that, there's no reason why we would do anything else but use that tag for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some stuff that's hard for us, um, like the chapters. Um, it's doable, but complicated because of dynamic insertion. So we we stitch together these audio files on the fly the minute somebody hits play, right? Mm. And so um, every single download of a given episode is uh, is unique to that particular uh, IP address pressing play. And so the result of that makes it a little more complicated for how we can do chapters mm. uh, when we don't know exactly how long an ad break is going to be until that moment. Um so there's some stuff we want to do. There's some stuff that's hard. Um, you know, some basic stuff like transcripts uh, or the locked, you know, tag. Some of these things feel really easy to implement, but we just have them sitting on a long list of things that are easy to implement and just yeah, need yeah, to, yeah. To no, I'm sure. Push down the I'm list. sure. Yeah, and I and I can see, you know, that particularly around dynamic ads, how difficult actually chapters and, uh, to be honest, closed captions are. Um, and uh, it strikes me that there's probably some changes that need to be made to the to the 
podcast namespace in order to actually achieve those. And I think probably a relative timestamp rather than a, uh, you know, um, so you actually know when you're coming back from an ad break from here, you know, from this particular point, 10 seconds after, then you can do that and blah, blah, blah. And so that may be a, may be a plan, but um, something to have a look at, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, yeah, you can't tell people where the ads are, though, or somebody will develop a client that fast forward through them. So uh, I agree, which is always, yeah. a, <laughs> always a little bit of fun, isn't it? Always a little yes. bit of fun. Yeah, no, very cool. Um, well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for your for your time. I really appreciate it. If people want to learn more about uh, Red Circle, then uh, where should they be going? It's just uh, our, our domain is redcircle.com and uh, you can find us on Twitter or other social media as well. Mike Caden from Red Circle and that's it for this interview extra. Let us know whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. You can drop us a boost using a new podcast app like Fountain or if you hanker after the olden days then drop us an email if your arthritic hands can cope with that. The email address is comments at podland.news. We're sponsored by Squadcast and by Buzzsprout. Music is from Studio Dragonfly. This was edited in Descript. I'm James Critland. Keep listening. Keep listening.